Yes, hello. Back from a holiday weekend. People have good Labor Days. Isn't Labor Day awesome? Three-day weekends, aren't they awesome? Is anybody miserable that you had to miss a day of classes? Man, y'all are very studious. Mountaineers are, it's, it's impressive. Gordon Gee would be proud. And did y'all, uh, we got to see our Mountaineers play last night. They fought valiantly and didn't embarrass ourselves on national television, which has kind of been a streak lately. So I, I considered it a, it a win. You know, it wasn't an Oklahoma repeat. Oklahoma game last year. Nate and, um, yes, Nate and some others remember that game very well. Oh, yeah, you too. Both of you with your pink shirt on. Pink, man, only real men wear pink. It's hot in the streets right there. Well, last week we got to start Sweet Series on Hosea. Well, not on Hosea. Exploring who God is through the Minor Prophets, but we started with Hosea. The very weird and bizarre story that Hosea is. If you don't remember, God asked him to marry a prostitute, which is very normal. Uh, you see that all the time. And, and then he marries her. And, you know, wow, surprise, it wasn't the smoothest of relationships. And some other things that we saw, we saw that uh, basically his just... Y'all look at me kind of like you're like surprised, like, remember Hosea? Strange story, kind of kind of weird. Let me, let me see. Uh, what if I, okay, let's envision Hosea's wedding ceremony. And this may help you in moving into the bizarreness of what was going on. Could you imagine that wedding ceremony? The preacher is saying to Hosea and Gomer, that is like the worst aspect of this story, is the fact that her name is Gomer. That is, just, that is just, isn't that the worst name? I'm not getting off that name. That name is awful. But the preacher, he's like, hey, you know, Hosea, do you solemnly swear to take, you know, Gomer as your lawfully wedded wife, you know, in sickness and in hell, till death, death do you part, all that stuff. And then Hosea's like, yeah, yeah, I do. And then Hosea, or the preacher, is probably like, well, Hosea, just to throw this out there, you r remember that Gomer is, is a prostitute. That's not what she was. That's what she is, and you are currently stepping into this relationship. Is this okay with you? And he's like, yeah, of course I do. And then he's like, all right, well, hold on, Hosea. Just, just throwing this out there, you do understand that your marriage, most of your marriage, she will live outside of the home, spending most of her time in trade with men who are men that you will see likely on a daily basis. And you will have kids. One, possibly even two of them will not even be your own. And you will assume the duty of raising them by yourself. Do you still say I do? And he says, I do. I love her. And, you know, the preacher asks Gomer, well, Gomer, will you marry Jose? And he's, she's probably like, well, sure. And so there you go. <laughs> That's probably what it was like. It's a weird circumstance. It's a bizarre story. It's It was bizarre to the readers then. It to the people then, it was bizarre to the people who watched it, and it's still bizarre today. But we did get to talk about it last week. We got to talk about some cool things that we see in the story. Not only that it should be on Jerry Springer, if Jerry Springer was still around. <sighs> what great television. Miss it. Miss it already. It's been, been gone for too long. Who, who Did anybody, I said Jerry Springer last week, does anybody even remember Jerry Springer? Raise your hand if you watched Jerry Springer. Oh, okay, that's more than I expected. Some some hands are high. Y'all are proud of that. 
Yes, Jerry Springer. Y'all are probably from Cincinnati. He was the mayor of Cincinnati and then stepped up to that show. What a, what a rise. What a rise. But tonight, we are going to jump into a really cool part of the Bible. I'm, it's so cool. It, we're going to look at Hosea 2 and 3. And I'm not exaggerating on this. There are people called theologians. These are people who, like, study the Bible as a living. And there are theologians who think that this passage in the Bible, Hosea 2 and 3, there are some who really do believe that this is the greatest passage in all of the Bible. It's like, it's like quite a statement. They really do believe that. Some people say, oh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Exodus 20, where it talks about the Ten Commandments, Luke 15, where it talks about the parable of lost things, Matthew 28, or the other resurrection accounts. Some people say those are the greatest, but there are some who genuinely believe that this is the greatest passage in all of the Bible. The reason I say that is not to de-emphasize or, you know, any other part of the Bible or overemphasize this passage. The only th reason I say that is to say that I am actually going to spend very little time telling stories tonight because I don't want my stories to get in the way of how sweet this story is. And I want to say all that there is to say about it. And so... For time's sake, I'm just going to stay in the story. The story is the story in itself. It's crazy, and I'll just throw this out there. The beginning of this will be a little hot. It'll, it'll be a little uncomfortable. It'll, it'll, be, uh, it'll be a little unsettling, but it'll be really good. It'll be really, really good. But just warning you, it's going to be like a, it's going to be a rise up, you know, and so it's, the beginning is going to be a little uncomfortable just just so we can like kind of see eye to eye on that. Cool, all right, well, we'll just jump right in. I'll say a prayer and we'll dive right in. Lord, this is an amazing passage and your heart is so loud and clear. Would you help each of us to see ourselves in this story and would you help us to see how majestic and how lovely and how amazing this story is. I'm excited for what you're going to say to us. Speak through me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to talk about four things tonight in these two passages, Hosea chapters 2 and 3. We're going to talk about how God, God's love cannot let you off, how God's love won't let you off, how God's love won't let you go, and how God's love won't let you down. We'll go through all four of these. You're probably like, this doesn't make any sense. It just, it, it'll make sense by the end. The first part, God's love won't or can't let you off. Can't. In Hosea chapter 2, this is right after what we read about him, him having children and his wife leaving and him naming children with very unique names. Please don't ever name your children after the spiritual condition of a nation. Not unless, not unless God tells you to. If he tells you to, well, then you don't. You got to say yes. You know. But anyways, Hosea 2, verse 2, it says, this is Hosea speaking. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breast. Otherwise, I will strip her naked, and I will make her as bare as on the day she was born. And I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. This guy's really hurt here. 
And just by the way, I said it last week. If it wasn't clear, it he is not sure. He is certain that all of those children are not his. Like that, that wasn't. I wasn't just like reading too much in the scripture. That's really what it says. He didn't know all these children were his. It's crazy. Verse five. It says their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me food and water, my wool and linen, my olive oil and drink. Did you catch that? She basically is saying, like, it's not only pleasure that I'm seeking, but also my lovers give me stuff, and that's what I love too. Like, she is not, like, whatever the reason is, we don't know completely the reason, but it's not too different from you and I. You know, like, we go and, and we choose other things outside of what we know to be best because of because of pleasure, I don't know, because of stuff, because we make a big deal out of recognition or affirmation or we make a big deal out of like, it's just a lot of different things. Sometimes it's, we're in college, or y'all are in college, I'm not in college anymore, but in college, people make, make grades everything. They make that ultimate. Or they make the pursuit of the future career that they hope to have. You see that a lot, people making that the most important thing. Whatever the reason is, she has done this to her family and to Hosea. Bless you. And she has hurt everyone. And the first thing I will say is this. What she is doing is she is sinning. And the easiest way that I could define what sin is is to say that sin is selfishness. That's the easiest definition that there is. Sin equals selfishness. Sometimes selfishness plays out in me doing what I want over what I know to be right. Sometimes selfishness plays out in me missing what God's best for me is. He has something that he wants me to do, a certain way that he wants me to live, and I settle. I go the other way. Sometimes it's simply just destroying peace, destroying the shalom. We talked about that last week, that God has, that God has set for everyone, disturbing that peace. Sometimes it's just introducing chaos into a situation. But it's choosing myself over what I know to be right. And you see this with her. She is choosing going outside of the love of the marriage commitment that she made, no matter how strong or weak that commitment was. It was still a commitment. And she is choosing those lovers over her family. Why is this sin? Because in the Bible it says in Ephesians 1.4 it says, For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. The main thing that verse tells me is that there is a destiny for each and every one of us. He has expectations for you, and these expectations are for what's best for you. It's not just what he wants, but he is trying to give you the best possible life today. And sin, well, sin kind of goes in the opposite of that. The easiest way I like to think of this is sin is kind of multiplying by zero in my life. Sin always leaves me with nothing in the end. No matter how much I gain at the beginning because I do something the wrong way in order to get whatever, it doesn't pay off. You know, I could, I could choose to cheat. I could lie. I could steal. I could desire what other people have. I could go and make my girlfriend or boyfriend or grades or how people view me the most important thing in my life. The Bible says that making anything more important than God in your life is sin. And that's, that's like, 
That's like some heavy stuff right there. But it's real. And it's true. And, and the way that he has set the universe, he has made it so that when you sin, it's not breaking some arbitrary law. It is literally you going against the very basis of what, like, to sin is to go in the opposite direction of a thriving life. That's the simplest way I can say it. If you go the opposite of what God wants for you, you will not thrive. It may be soon or it may be later, but it'll lead you to destruction. I like the way a friend of mine, his name is E. Stanley Jones. He's a missionary. Some of y'all know him. Some of y'all like him. He says this really well. He says, when we sin, we do not break the laws of the universe. We break ourselves upon the laws of the universe. When we sin, we do not break the laws of the universe. We break ourselves upon the laws of the universe. Think of it like this. Because I remember the first time, actually like the first six times I read that, it didn't make any sense to me. It took me literally years to understand this. Think of it like this. You jump off of a building in Pittsburgh. I'm not going to say Morgantown because there's not that many big buildings there. But uh, in Pittsburgh, well, actually, we got a couple big ones. We got the Marriott. We got the Life Science. Or not the, we're in the Life Science building. I guess this is pretty high. Uh, but you don't want to break your legs and then not die. So let's do this the right way. The, the <laughs> engineering building. I'm sorry. That wasn't supposed to be like, no, I was just, it was just for example's sake. <laughs> but in, in, let's, let's say the engineering building. I'm pretty sure it's the highest building in town. All right, some engineers are nodding at me, so I know I've done something right. The engineering building. Let's say you jump off the engineering building. What happens? Do you break the law of gravity, or does the law of gravity break? Do, or you, do you break yourself on the law of gravity? Do you break the law of gravity, or do you break yourself on the law of gravity? That's how it is with sin. We do not sin in a way where we break laws, and it's just, oh, that wasn't good. We break ourselves on those laws. You think about Gomer. She... It wasn't something where she was like, like, Jose is like, oh, man, I can't believe this woman. These are the laws of God. Does she not even know them? Could you? This is pathetic. Children, don't look at her. Don't look at her in her shame. I can't believe that woman broke those laws. It's not like that at all. It is, it is something where she has broken herself, her character, her integrity, everything she cares about. Her life is being destroyed over her choices, and she is not only breaking herself, but she's breaking her children's lives, and she's breaking the lives of her husband. We don't break laws. We break ourselves on these laws. That is sin, and that's because God's laws are a description of reality from an infinite perspective. God does not just make arbitrary laws where he's like, hey, you got to do this, and you got to do that, and if you don't do it, I'm going to be mad. No, he has set the world in a way so that if you live a certain way, you will thrive, and you'll be with him. And if you go against him, you'll destroy yourself. You know, one other thing that kind of sucks about this is that you look at this passage, and it says in what? Verse 7. It says in verse 7, she will pursue her lovers, but she will never overtake them. And it kind of repeats this all throughout. You look at this woman, you look at the life that she's living, she's addicted. She is addicted to what she loves. But the thing that sucks about sin is that sin makes us addicts of the thing that we want. 
It's like heroin. You're always chasing the first high, but you'll never get that again. And sin makes us addicts where we go and we pursue it more and more and more, but it'll never be enough. It'll never satisfy. It'll never scratch that itch completely. You'll always be wanting it more, and you always have to get more, and it still won't be enough. That's pretty heavy. But just to go a little deeper, it says, and I really hope that you hear what I'm about to say, because this is like, this is huge. I wish I was like 17 sitting in your seat, or I wish I was 20 sitting in your seat. I wish. It, it took years before I got this, before this made sense. I used to really struggle with this sin stuff in the Bible. I used to read stuff in the Bible and be like, man, why does God have to be so hard on sin? Why, in a sense, why can't he let you off? Why does he have to make it such a big deal? Why does it have to matter so much to him? Why does he have to talk about it all the time? Why does he care so much about wrath? What's the deal with it? I thought you were a loving God. Why, why are you so consumed with wrath? And then it hit me. It was in this chapter. It was in looking at this chapter. I'm not exaggerating. It was in looking at this chapter that it became so clear. God cannot let you off. He cannot let me off when it comes to sin. He cannot deal lightly with sin. Because it says in 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love, does not know God I'm sorry, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. He does not do loving things. He is love. He's the very essence of love. Love unselfishly chooses what's best for someone. So when we say that, when it says that God is loving or that God is love, that means that he chooses what's best for you, and that's always his chief thought when it comes to you. Not how can I make you live the way that I want you to live, but how can I do what's best for you in this moment? That's his chief concern. What does it have to do with his wrath? It has to do with this. If God loves me and cares most about me and lets me live in sin and never does anything about it, then you've just proved to me that God never loved me to begin with. For God not to be tough on sin is for God not to be a loving God. Because sin destroys the thing that he loves. G. Campbell Morgan, another friend of mine, he said this much better than I could. If you could persuade me that God deals lightly with sin, you could you could by that argument prove to me that he is no lover of lives. It is because sin reacts to destroy, ruin, shrink, devastate a human being that God can make no terms with it. The reason for God's judgment of sin is the sin blasts and spoils those whom God loves. If you could persuade me that God deals lightly with sin, you could by that argument prove to me that he is no lover of lives. If he wasn't tough on sin, then we've just confirmed that he's not a loving God. I was just hugging my daughter. She just left. She's like two and, well, not two and a half now. She's about two and nine months. What if, what would y'all say about me if, Y'all just saw me, and, you know, I'm hanging out with her, and then all of a sudden she just comes up to me and says, hey, Daddy, can I play on the roof? Sure, yeah, 
yeah. Go play on the roof. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, hold on. You want to go play with an open can uh, with the lit candle? Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Zoe. Oh, all of your friends are playing in the middle of the street? Yeah, go ahead. Y'all have fun. Oh, you want to go to the movies tonight in your two? Sure. Here's $5. Let me open the door for you. And there you go. Oh, yeah, sure, Zoe. Like, do whatever you want. If that's how I treated my daughter, you would not only call the police and the FBI and CPS and whomever else will listen, but you would go home and you probably wouldn't sleep that night because you'd be like, how could, how could Jordan hate his daughter that much? How could he be so indifferent about her? How could he not love his daughter at all? If God wasn't tough on sin, he can't be a loving God. He can't be what he says he is. If you feel that tension, if you feel unsettled, or if you feel like, man, this is like just another, just another sin talk, well, I can understand that. But the cool thing about this story is that the focus isn't the sin. The first half of this story, Hosea chapter 2, it's all about the sin of his wife. And there's nothing uncommon about that. We see that every day in many different forms and fashions. Fashion. No one is surprised by sin in the world. No one really is. We see it all the time. What's uncommon about this story is everything that comes after. And that's the most important part. He can't let you off. But also, he won't let you off. And this is like, we're going up. We're going up on the roller coaster. We are going up. I can hear the I love that sound. I, I like roller coasters. Sorry for the people who are afraid. Well, not afraid of this, but afraid of roller coasters. You could be afraid of this too, but you shouldn't be. Now, when it comes to, like, you hear this in some of your classes, there's, like, these big arguments over, like, all right, well, when it comes to prisoners, what do we do with prisoners? You know, what do we do with somebody who commits a crime? Do we go and throw them in jail forever to make them pay for what they've done? Or do we try to rehabilitate the person? There's the struggle, rehabilitation or punitive damages. What do you do? It's the same struggle in the Bible. Is God obsessed with rehabilitation or is God obsessed with paying people back for hurting him? Some people have this thought that God is about paying people back. And Hosea chapter 2 shows us that that's not the case. Hosea 2, 7, 8 says, She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as, as at first. For then I was better off than now. She has acknowledged that I was the, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, who lavished her, who lavished her the silver and the gold, which used the bells. By the way, if you see how hard I'm struggling with this, then you shouldn't feel bad about reading the Bible and looking at some tough passages. Because, look, if I can't even read it and I read it all the time, then surely it's okay if you read it and you mess up. Just throwing that out there so you can't you know, feel bad when you struggle to read these passages. They're not easy. What he is saying here is that he is going to use the pain in, his, in her life to get her to wake up to allure her, to woo her. If you think I'm jumping too far or too far ahead of myself with that, 
Hosea 2, verses 14 and 15, he goes even further into it, and he says it explicitly. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness. I will lead her into an unpleasant place. And I will speak tenderly to her. I will lead her to an unpleasant place, and then I will speak tenderly to her. Are you, are you seeing what's going on here? <laughs> Let's keep reading. Verse 15, there I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the Valley of Accor a door of hope. All right, Valley of Accor. Valley of Accor was a place mentioned three times in the Old Testament. Some really bad stuff happened there. It's an unpleasant place. It's so unpleasant that they, named, they gave it the name, the Valley of Accor, which means the Valley of Trouble. Oh, it's my phone. The Valley of Trouble. He is saying, I will go and take her into the Valley of Trouble, and that will be to to her a door of hope. This is good stuff. Some of y'all are squinting at me like, "What what are you talking about? I got a friend and his wife, now wife, it was a girlfriend then, she likes to eat a lot of cheese. She loves cheese. Some of you all have heard this story before. She is obsessed with cheese. We all have things that we like to eat, ice cream and and gummy bears for me, for y'all. There's other things, you know. What's something that you really like to eat that you probably shouldn't have too much of? Chicken. Hold on, chicken? That's like, that's good for you. If I let you keep going, you probably would have said vegetables after that, man. I got to watch you. What else is there? Mac and cheese, chocolate, thank you, reasonable things that are, are not the best for you. For me, ice cream and gummy bears. Coffee? Who said that? Where are you? Show yourself. Where are you? Who spoke that of coffee? I'll find you. Coffee. Disgusting. My friend... I was about to say his wife. Well, that is his wife. I was about to say her wife. Well, I don't know what I was about to say. Anyway, she likes cheese. She likes cheese so much that she always overeats it. She overate it so much once that she had to go to the hospital and they had to pump her stomach because she was going to die. Or even worse, she would have been backed up for like two months, which to me is way worse. I'm just like, look, bring death on. Like nobody wants to be backed up for two months. That is just like... And some of y'all are like, man, he went there. I sure did. Nobody wants to be backed up for that long. But what happens when we eat stuff? When we eat stuff, what does it do? If we eat too much of the wrong thing or too much of anything, our body speaks to us. It speaks to us and it tells us, hey, you need to change your eating habits or you need to eat less. It speaks to us in our discomfort. And that is the same way God speaks to us today. And then he speaks to us through discomfort. If he made it so that you could just sin and enjoy it to the end, you would never stop doing it. And you would you would go and gladly destroy yourself. But he doesn't he doesn't use trouble in our life to punish us for the stuff that we've done. He uses trouble in our life to usher us into hope. And to show us the way out. Do y'all realize how cool that is? When you read the Bible and you're like, man, why is this going on? Why is this happening? It's because he's trying to speak to these people. 
but not to destroy them, not to pay them back, not to be like, oh, you hurt me, I got to hurt you, which is something that we are all familiar with. He isn't like that. That's pretty cool. I don't know. I think about what C.S. Lewis says. He says it so well. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his, it, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He could devote himself to pushing us down and hurting us and making us feel just as hurt as he is. But that's not who he is. This passage is, is telling us he's not like that. So not only can he not, uh, not let us off when it comes to sin, but he won't let us off when it comes to sin. He will use it to win us, to woo us. But we don't stop there. God, God's love for us won't let us go. I'm like, I'm like trying to settle myself down. I'm so excited about this. I've, I, I, I was reading something today. And somebody was saying that this, just these next five verses are like, when it, in the Bible, it's like as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife. Go again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. It has to do with idol worship. Don't let that throw you off. <laughs> he's, not, he's not against you eating food. Food is okay. So I bought, her to, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man, with any man. And I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince without sacrifice or sacred stone, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. David their king is just it's another way of saying Jesus. He is the fulfillment of David because David the king was already dead after this. He was, he was David's greatest ancestor who was prophesied about. They will come trembling to the Lord, to his blessing to his blessings in the last day. God tells Hosea, go and love, go again and love. Go again and love. Go again and love. Go again and love. Are y'all catching how good of a verse that is? You know, looking at me like so many blank faces. This is like, this is, this is top notch. I had a friend. I, I watched it. I'm, this is not an exaggeration. I watched it. I saw it. I had a friend who was married, and his wife stepped out on him, and he was devastated. And I watched him have a conversation with another friend, and I'm watching this whole thing. And this guy is crushed. His wife steps out on him, and he's just, he's like hopeless. 
He thinks he can never trust her again. He thinks he could never, like, he could never welcome her back in. He thinks that she'll never change. It was, it was unbelievable to watch what went on. And I watched the friend he was saying, the guy was crying, he was saying all this stuff, and I watched the guy, I watched the other guy, his friend he's talking to, and I'm like looking at this, and the guy didn't say anything. He didn't say anything to him. He literally is just listening, listening to this guy pour his heart out, and then all of a sudden, it's quiet, and the dude opens up his Bible. The other guy, not, not the guy crying. Well, by that time, I, I think both of them were crying. And he opens up to this passage. And he tells him, go and love her again. Go again and love her. And the guy said, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if she's going to change. I don't know if she's, I don't know if it, it might be the same thing again. And he looked at him and he said, go again and love her. And I'm watching this and I'm like, this is, this is the kind of stuff you see on like movies and stuff. It's the only thing that guy said to him. And the guy just starts crying again and, you know, he starts crying even more. And he's like, you know, I'll go again. You know, it's, it's, it's like it was, it was real. And I watched him. He did. He went and he loved her again. And their marriage thrived and they, they moved on past it. Look, hey, some of y'all are small group leaders, and some of you have been like, hey, you know what? Look, I've been trying to love some people, and there's some people who, look, they just love the sacred raisin cakes. You know, they, that, 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 is, that is what they are about, and, and they're not interested in small group. They're not interested in, like, knowing God. They're not interested in anything that's good. And you know what? You just kind of want to give up on them. You want to do what Hosea did. But God tells, him that, God tells this to him while his wife is not at home. She isn't at home. She's still out when he says this. And he says, go again and love her. This, this speaks to me so much because you hear what he said. He didn't say there was no promise of restoration there. He didn't tell him, go and be victorious. He told him, go again and love. And he didn't tell him to go and fix her. That's what we like to do. We like to go and fix people. Walk up to someone tell him hey you're doing all this stuff wrong i'm gonna fix you he didn't tell him to go and fix you he doesn't call us to do that god calls us to love people go and love people he doesn't tell you to fix the world he doesn't tell you to fix the campus he didn't tell you to fix your friends he didn't tell you to fix your family he didn't even tell you to really fix yourself how can you love me you pursue me that's really all he calls us to do and we pursue him and then he changes us but when it comes to other people we just love them he does not call you to fix people. He calls you to love people. Go again and love that person. Look, man, I, I might be speaking to myself, but that is, yo, Jordan, that's some good stuff. Yo. I, I'm, I agree. That's really good. Sorry, that's my, like, peanut gallery voice. I'll bring it out some more. Anybody know what a peanut gallery is? Yeah. Hey, some people know what that is. All right, didn't, didn't lose everyone with that. This is so cool. This is so cool because it says that Hosea went out. I don't even know what this process was like. God said, go out, look for your wife. Where does he even go to look for his wife? He probably has to, this is a man of God. He probably has to go into the worst neighborhoods in town to find where this woman is. Who knows where she is? But where does he find her? He finds her in the worst place possible. Well, I can think of another place. But the second worst place possible which is literally at a slaver's market. 
That's where he finds her because we know he found her there because he had to buy her. He had to buy what was already his. She was already his, and he had to buy her back. He had to buy his wife back. And then he finds her, and it, just to give you a picture of what's going on, this is a terrible place. This is a place where you walk in, and they sell this, like, it's, it's like sex trade. It, they, she's there. She's probably naked. She's probably chained. She is probably on a platform, utterly embarrassed, and he goes up to her, and he buys her. But then it says, what does he buy her for? 15 pieces of silver. That, that may not seem like much to you. That is half the price of a slave. A slave was 30 pieces of silver. So 15 pieces, pieces of silver, you know what that means? That means that she was so ruined and ravaged, and she had been with so many different people that she was basically worthless. She, was, she didn't even get the privilege of being called a slave. She was lower than that. That's low. And a homer of barley, that just means a day's rations for a slave. He bought his wife, what was already his. He bought her for half the price of a slave and meals for a slave for the day. That's what he bought. A woman that he loved, the woman that he promised himself to. That's some real stuff. And I just can't help but think, you just picture Hosea and Gomer. That The Bible tells us that this is not just a picture of them two, but it is a picture of God with us. And the Bible says that the earth is the Lord, Lord's and the fullness thereof. It also says that mankind is his unique possession. And 2,000 years ago, he sent his son, his son, to pay the price. God walked into the slaver's market in your life. And as we have been ruined and ravaged, this is what the Bible, this is what the Bible tells us. He even said it just as it is, Hosea, with you and your wife, so it is with Israel and me. But Israel is not just speaking about Israel then. It is speaking prophetically over the whole world. That's what that means. Whether you feel it or not, that is what sin has done to you. It has made you worthless. And he has made it so that he not only went and bought what was already his, but he has also said to you, I want to give you a new future. I want to speak tenderly over you. I'm going to bring you back into my house. And we're not like he told her, we're not even going to do anything just so that because we have to restore this relationship. It's not even about the physical with you. I'm not getting you back to have you physically. I'm getting you back to win you. I'm getting you back to win you. Isn't that crazy? God walks into the slaver's markets of our life, and he says, how much? How much? And it cost him his son. Man, that'll, that'll speak. But one really cool thing about this, it says in verse 5, it's really cool. In verse 5, you probably missed it. It's, it's kind of hard to catch. And I'm going to read it just so I can make sure that I can say this clearly. In verse 5, it prophetically speaks over our future. It says that they shall fear the Lord. Israel and Judah knew what it was like to fear the Lord. Because back then, when you feared the Lord, it meant terror. 
fear equals terror back then in the old system. But then it's because, and, and they knew this because they couldn't keep all the Ten Commandments. They couldn't be perfect. No one is perfect. No one has been able to be perfect. And everyone was ashamed when they approached God. But he is saying there will come a day, he prophesies, where Jesus will appease the wrath of God. And the fear of in those days, in the latter days, will not be fear over how we are not good enough. It'll be a fear because we are afraid of God's goodness. We will be before a God who is so good that we won't even know what to do with ourselves. Lord, you would love me after I sunk that low? Yes. You would pay that much for me? Yes. You love me even more than Hosea loved his wife? Yes. You had Hosea's life be ruined and wrecked just to communicate to me how much you love me? Yes. What we will fear about the Lord is not terror over how good we aren't. It will be terror over the fact that I am in the presence of someone I do not deserve to be in their presence of. This was not fair to him. No one likes when you don't get what is fair, what you were owed. You don't even have to teach someone to get mad when something unfair happens to them. And he goes and he takes what we deserve. He takes the cross that we deserve. And he takes that on himself so that he can buy us back. The band can go ahead and come back up. Pretty much done. But for anybody wondering, you did notice that there's one more section. As the band makes their way up, I don't have to, I don't, I don't need a lot of time to say this. God's love for you in this passage makes it clear that he won't let you down. It says in verse, chapter 2, verse 19, it says, and this is before he says, go again and love this woman. It says, I will, be, God is saying, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. You will acknowledge the Lord. The coolest thing about the Bible to me is not just that it tells me like I was some like really cool things about how I ought to live my life, but it also gives me the power to taste those things and to have them. He is not just the God who wants to show you how much he loves you. He promises you the power to literally be like Gomer in the sense where however bad your past was, he can transform you. He can bring you back into his house and he can give you a new future and a new destiny. He can free you from some of those things, some of those addictions, some of those things that we love more than him, he can make it no matter how many times you've tried to quit it. He can make it so that you can, you can literally be free of it. And I've tasted this. I don't just read this as someone who's like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. I'm going to try it. I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in the lives of others. He can bring you into his house, and he can, he can nurse you like he did Gomer and back into back into relationship with him, back into freedom 
in your own life. He can do that for you. Some of us need to taste that power tonight. Some of us are here, and we've just been out outside the house. We've made promises to Jose. We've prayed, made promises to God, and we've kind of left the house a little bit. We've kinda, we've, we're kind of enjoying the raisin cakes and the new moon festivals and all the weird things that she was into, but we're kind of liking those things more than God right now, and we kind of need to be free, and we need to confess that to him because he cannot, he, he's not interested in us just being good people in name. He wants you to really be free in your own life. And some of us have never really let ourselves be in his house. Some of us have never really taken those steps towards him. And tonight is the night. What else does God have to prove to you about how much he loves you? No one in this world will love you like this. No one will go this far. And the Bible tells us that he goes much further than this. And he does it in many different ways to speak to you how much he loves you. And some of us just need to try again. Some of us are here and we need to try again. We need to go and love that person again. No matter how much they hurt us, no matter how hopeless they seem, no matter how it seems like they'll never get it, no matter how bitter we are at them, we have to try again with them. Let's pray. Father God, your love is so loud and clear in this passage. Pray, Lord, that I didn't get in the way of it, but that you would speak to everyone's hearts here tonight. No matter where we are, that we would hear how much you love us, and we would know that, and that we would trust you, Lord. You're so worth our trust. You are so worth our trust. Speak to us tonight. Help us to see that trust as worth it, to run towards you, no matter how embarrassed we are, no matter how overwhelming our sin may feel, no matter how discouraged we may be. Help us to trust you. Speak to us tonight. You're so trustworthy, Lord. Thank you for this beautiful story of how much you love us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to, y'all can go ahead and stand. I'm going to do something a little different tonight. I don't usually do this, but I just, I just feel this overwhelming feeling that there are some people who have never really taken that step towards the Lord here tonight or ever. And you want freedom. You want freedom in your life and you want to trust this God. I don't know who you are. But I would ask this. That if you want to take a step towards God tonight. If you want to put your trust in this God and who he is. I would ask you right now in front of your friends. In front of whomever. That you would raise your hand. I'm asking right now that you would raise your hand. And you would let that be the first step of you coming towards God. If you're out there, raise your hand now. If this is worth it, 
you'll do it in front of the other people around you because he is worth it. There's nothing embarrassing about this. If you've raised your hand tonight and if you've been, if you're really unsettled and you don't know what you want to do, I would encourage you to talk to your small group leader or talk to the person who invited you. Tell them and ask them to pray with you. Tell them that you want to accept this great God into your heart. And they'll walk with you through this. We all will. He's trustworthy. I think he's proven that.